0: You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Well, good morning, church family. As I was introduced via video, I'm Joe Thigpen. I have the honor and privilege of serving as your discipleship pastor. This morning, we're continuing our plan for this year to work through the Bible book by book. And now if you're just joining us, if you're new to City Church, this isn't our typical pattern for how we usually spend the year, although we do spend time in the scriptures, but it's been our plan this year to provide a series of overview sermons for each book of the Bible, and sometimes, such as this week, multiple books at once. We've covered Genesis through Micah, and this week we're, as you saw, focusing on Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. So before we dive in, let's pray together. Father, what a joy it is to gather and worship. Now as we turn to your word, Lord, we pray that you would enliven our hearts. Lord, we want to hear from you. So grant us grace, grant me grace as I preach. Grant those in this room and watching online grace as they hear that your word may dwell richly in us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, on October 17th, 1781, the British troops surrendered to the Continental Army at Yorktown. Now, legend has it that three days later, on October 20th, 1781, as the British troops laid down their arms before the Continental Army, their troops played a well-known 1640s ballad, The World Turned Upside Down. You may have caught that in the the Hamilton musical. They they played this to mark the occasion. Now, whether this ballad was played is tough to say. However, what is clear is that the Battle of Yorktown in the American War for Independence marked a turning point. It was after this battle that the balance began to shift as British leaders, both in the continent and in England, grew skeptical of justifying the cost of the war. We can see a new world at the Battle of Yorktown was beginning to emerge, but it wouldn't be until September 3rd, 1783, when American independence would finally be recognized in the Treaty of Paris, showing that it's one thing to declare independence and another to achieve it. Now, the founders of this country, to be sure, sought to build a better world that looked different than the old, and in a way they did turn the world upside down. The people envisioned a landmark by justice, liberty, and equality, but to achieve this, as those who fought knew, would take great cost. The American founders themselves wouldn't promote these ideas perfectly or even agree on how best to achieve them, and many who would come after them would work to still build a better nation. Well, this does bring us to our study this morning of Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, three of the 12 minor prophets. And as we've been reminded over the last two weeks, they're not called minor because of their insignificance, but because of their length. Each of these prophets, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, speak of God's judgment of world powers. They prophesy of great kingdoms being reduced to ashes. They speak for God, whose anger burns hot against his enemies the sovereign God who holds the world in his hands and uses the nations to accomplish his purposes. But it's not all destruction and judgment, although there is a lot of that. No, these prophets tell of a small, beleaguered, but faithful remnant who will reign. The prideful will be brought low, but the humbled will be exalted. So let's begin. If you have your Bible, turn to the book of Nahum. In Nahum, we, we will see that God conquers his enemies. God conquers his enemies. We know very little about the prophet Nahum. We know where he's from only because he includes it in the first verse of the book. Other biographical information about Nahum is unknown. Importantly, we do know he prophesied between 663 and 612 BC, and his words are, as he says, an oracle concerning Nineveh. You'll remember from last week that Jonah too prophesied to Nineveh about 100 years before Nahum. You'll also remember that after Jonah called Nineveh to repent, they did and God spared them. However, I'm afraid it's not the same this time. No, this time the people of Nineveh wouldn't turn and God's judgment would come. Nahum gets right to it. Read with me starting in verse one. The pronouncement concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and the storm and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up and he makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and caramel wither Even the flower of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can ensure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Even rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in in the day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him but he will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood. And he will chase his enemies into darkness. Talk about a way to begin the book. Well, we do see that God conquers his enemies, but we see a reason for that, that God conquers his enemies because his character demands it. God conquers his enemies because his character demands it. Nahum here doesn't begin with a list of Nineveh's sins as other prophets might. Rather, he starts with a series of statements about God and his wrath toward sin. Nahum wants to remind his audience of who God is. The Ninevites have heard a message from God before. Remember Jonah. In Jonah 3, 1 through 5, Jonah writes this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to the Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. Now the response is completely different, and it's striking. It's striking. Why, why such a difference? Why did Nineveh forget God and now n- fail to respond to Nahum's woe? Well, to be, to be sure, we, we don't exactly know. The scriptures aren't clear on this matter, but perhaps we can speculate some. Perhaps in their great power, like so many, they turned from the Lord. They may have trusted in the size of their armies. They were large after all, or the, even in the ingenuity of their planning. Nineveh, you'll remember, was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, that great power who conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and constantly threatened Judah. Maybe they viewed themselves as unstoppable. They felt that nothing was beyond their reach or conquest. Or maybe they trusted in their great size, were distracted by the beauty of their art, or were comforted in the abundance of riches. Now, we don't have to think too long on this to realize that this sounds familiar. How many other nations of the world have trusted in their own might or their own riches or been overly entertained and looked to the beauty of their creation? Doesn't this sound like the great kingdoms and the great cities throughout history? Think of cities such as Athens, Rome, Constantinople, Paris, London, and yes, even Washington, D.C. Exactly what it was for Nineveh, again, we can't say. But we do know that they turned from the Lord and his purposes. Like all cities and nations, Nineveh was accountable to God and their sins were against him. From this learn this lesson. You cannot impugn his character forever without retribution. You cannot impugn God's character forever without retribution. Now God would bring Nineveh to an end. Chapter two tells exactly how God will bring about their destruction. He will judge them in history. And his judgment will be totally devastating. He will conquer them because his character demands it. And God conquers his enemies and his plans ensure it. God conquers his enemies and his plans ensure it. Look with me now at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Nahum 2, 1 through 4. One who scatters is coming up against you. Man the fortifications, watch the road, brace yourself, summon all your strength. For the Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob. Yes, the majesty of Israel. Though ravagers have ravaged them and ruined their vine branches. The shield of his warriors are dyed red. The valiant men are dressed in scarlet. The fitting of the chariot flash like fire. On the day of its battle, preparations and the spears are brandished. The chariots dash madly through the streets. They rush around in the plazas. They look like torches they dart back and forth like lightning. Now everything that Nineveh was known for and feared for, God is now systematically taking away. Assyria boasted in the strength of their armies and and their ability to overpower their enemies, but now God is making a mockery of them. They will be overpowered and overwhelmed. The weapons of Assyria's enemies will be much greater than the Assyrians had ever seen before. But it does get worse. In verses 6 through 10, Assyria is plundered. The beauty that once characterized the great empire is stripped. Nineveh is reduced to a pool of water. Their riches are plundered, their glory will be taken from them, and their kingdom will fall. Verse 10 summarizes what will happen. Look with me quickly. Desolation, decimation, devastation, hearts melt, knees tremble, insides churn, every face grows pale. Think for a moment about what's happening here. Nahum is giving his pronouncement to the people inhabiting a great city of a great empire. In many ways, the Assyrian empire had never been greater, and the people of Nineveh's lives had never been better. But here is Nahum saying that the Lord will orchestrate their downfall. More will be said about how God does this in Habakkuk, but it's worth noting before we move on that God accomplished exactly what he said he would not long after Nahum made this pronouncement. History records that in 612 BC, Nineveh fell to the Babylonians. Another army, more powerful than theirs, came in and decimated the city. The devastation was so complete that for over 2,000 years, historians and archeologists didn't even know where Nineveh was. Think about that. This was the capital city of a superpower. And within a short time, the city was so devastated that it was forgotten literally in the dustbin of history. Few records existed. Most of what could be known about this once great power are contained in the scriptures. It wasn't until 1842 that archaeologists archaeologists discovered the remains of Nineveh. And when they did, they noted that the remains of this one great city were found, listen to this, under an unusual amount of ash. They also noted to their surprise and I'm sure their dismay that there wasn't much gold, silver, or other artifacts of value and beauty. The city was stripped, pillaged, and burned to the ground, just as God had said it would be. God's plan to conquer his enemies and his plans cannot be refuted. No nation or individual can stand up to his judgment. No amount of weapons, riches, or inner fortitude can improve your chances against this all-powerful God. So friend, the question for us this morning is, have you considered your state before God? Have you seriously considered his coming judgment on his enemies? Do you see yourself as an enemy of God? Or perhaps more importantly, does God see you as his enemy? The scriptures speak clearly on this matter. In the New Testament, Ephesians 2, 3 says, we are all by nature children of wrath. Romans 8, 7 also also concludes that left to ourselves, we are hostile to God. That is, we are his enemies. Friend, learn from the example of Nineveh. As one writer put it, God judges the nations in history, but judges individuals in eternity. Don't be fooled into thinking like Nineveh did that being grieved over sin once will save you from judgment. Don't mistake current prosperity for God's favor in your life. Inquire of him about your standing. Nineveh was convicted of their sin upon hearing God's word through Jonah, but they had turned from God and trusted in their riches and might after Jonah had left, but God's anger burned against them. A call to you, And to us, sounds from Nineveh through the New Testament. Repent and believe. Admit your sin to God and trust in his provision for you in Jesus. Next, as we move on, God conquers his enemies and his people will see it. God conquers his enemies and his people will see it. Now, astute readers of Nahum will notice two audiences to the prophecy. As we've traced so far, the main thrust and focus of this book is... For Nahum's original audience, and that is the people of Nineveh. However, as you make your way through the book, another audience emerges. It's first glimpsed in chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. Look back there. This is what the Lord says, verse 12. Though they are strong and numerous, they will be mowed down, and he will pass pass away. Though I have punished you, I will punish you no longer. For I will now break off this yoke from you and tear off your shackles. It's also clear in chapter 2, verse 2. Look down there. For the Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob. Yes, the majesty of Israel. Though ravagers have ravaged them and ruined their vine branches. The other audience is God's people, the Israelites. The book of Nahum does address the city of Nineveh, but God's people are intended to hear Nahum's message and see God's judgment on his enemies. Upon the first reference, attention builds in Nahum's prophecy. To be sure, as the Israelites would have heard this message of doom, they first would have been reminded of God's judgment on them. Like Nineveh, Israel heard of God's jealousy and his plans to punish them for their idolatry. We read about this in Isaiah nine. If you want to note it, it's isaiah nine eight through ten four, isaiah nine eight through ten four. We don't have time to turn there this morning. As Israel was to hear this prophecy and see the judgment of Nineveh carried out, they were to remember that they too had been judged and, we, and would be judged again by this great God. Yet through, through their judgment, and though their judgment and exile would echo, God had another purpose in mind. His judgment on Nineveh is part of his plan to restore his people. They would observe God keep his promises by, by displaying his character and executing his plan. In the last chapter, Nahum gives a final woe as a mockery to Nineveh. He, on behalf of God and God's people, boasts in the city's destruction and what it shows about the greatness of God and his plan. Look how the book closes in Nahum 3:18 through 19. Nahum 3, 18 through 19. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber. Your officers sleep. Your people are scattered across the mountains with no one to gather them together. There is no remedy for your injury Your wound is severe. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands because of you. For who has not experienced your constant cruelty? The Assyrian empire has reached its end. The king who once reigned in terror was gone. The armies that provoked fear were were proved weak and insufficient. All who feared Assyria's strength, God's people included, will now see its humiliation and celebrate. Now, as we've seen in Nahum, the Lord was not interested in merely shifting the balance of power. God intends for his people to see the downfall of Assyria as part of his unfolding plan to redeem his people. Great kingdoms and great cities are no match for him. His plans cannot be stopped. God conquers his enemies, so submit to him. God conquers his enemies, submit to him. With that in mind, we now turn to the book of Habakkuk. In Habakkuk, we see that God commands the nations. God commands the nations. We know even less about Habakkuk, the man, than we do about Nahum. We don't know where he's from, but we do know he prophesied between 640 and 615 B.C., before the fall of Assyria. Like Nahum, Habakkuk focuses on how God will judge and accomplish his purposes amongst the nations. Habakkuk prophesies that God will raise up the Chaldeans, which or the Babylonians, to carry out his judgment on Assyria and the tribe of Judah. As as we'll see, this prompts a question for Habakkuk. Let's pick up and read in Habakkuk 1, verses one through four. Habakkuk 1 1 through four. The pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw. How long, Lord, must I call for help? And you do not listen. Or you cry out about in violence and you do not save. Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Habakkuk opens with a question directed to God. Habakkuk looks around and sees injustice, violence, wickedness, and strife. The law itself is ineffective. The wicked rule, the righteous, and justice, as he says, is perverted. How much can we see this echoed in our own day? We can look at aspects of life in this country and certainly other countries around the world and see similarities. The innocent are punished while the guilty go free. Wicked people are in positions of power while our brothers and sisters are impoverished or persecuted. Justice is not perfected, and peace is not as we see it now, is not lasting. We often wonder if God hears and if he'll act. Now see how God responds to Habakkuk in verses five through six. He says, look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astonished, for I am doing something in your days that you will not believe. When you hear about it, look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter impetuous nation that marches across the earth, open spaces, to seize territories not its own. God answers Habakkuk's question by inviting him to look at his plan. God is working in the world to bring about an end to the injustice Habakkuk sees. He says he's raising up the Chaldeans to deliver his judgment on the Assyrians. As Dean reminded us last week, God sees, God cares, and God will act. Now he shows Habakkuk how he will act, and Habakkuk responds with another question. Continue reading in verse 15, chapter 1, verse 15, or excuse me, 12, chapter 1, verse 12. Are you not from eternity, Lord my God? My Holy One, will you not die? Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment. My rock, you destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent? While one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself. Habakkuk asks, how can God, being good, use an evil nation for his purposes? Before we get into how God answers this question, let's first notice a few things about the question itself. Habakkuk asks a question based on what he does know about God. He asks based on what he knows about God. He knows God and is acquainted with his ways. He knows how God has acted in the past as well as the meaning of those actions. So this question for Habakkuk is not some idle philosophical speculation or a question drafted to somehow end a debate. No, Habakkuk himself is casting himself on the Lord's counsel. He is asking because he wants the Lord's instruction. He asks his question and waits for God to answer. Look at Chapter two, verse one, chapter two, verse one. I will stand my guard at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and I should reply about my complaint. Like Job, who brought his complaint before God and was silent, so too Habakkuk brings this question before God and waits for him. How, are we, how we're helped by Habakkuk's example, when you inquire of God, do you do so according to knowledge of him? Do you ask him based on what you know about him or merely from some speculation? Habak exam- example can be instructive. See how God responds in the next verse, in verse 2 of chapter 2. The Lord answered me, write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read. For the vision is yet for the appointed time, it testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. The Lord gives Habakkuk a vision that testifies about the end of time. He expands Habakkuk's sight. Habakkuk is narrowly focused on the judgment of the Assyrians by by the Babylonians. God comes to widen Habakkuk's gaze. He knows the Babylonians will become prideful like the Assyrians and will also fall. It is in pride that the Babylonians will amass wealth and power for itself. It will gather all peoples to, and expand its influence. And see, skip down to verse 12 and see what God says. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town on injustice. It is not from the Lord of armies that the people labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the seas. God is saying to Habakkuk, don't be deceived by the nation's raging. Babylonian too will be brought to justice. God will overthrow all his enemies. And so as verse 14 says beautifully, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the seas. God commands the nations for his glory. God commands the nations for his glory. Whatever may come, God is working all things that the earth may be full of the knowledge of him. Kings will bow to him. Through his plan, knowledge of him will be spread across all nations as the waters cover the sea. God's glory is God's aim. There is none greater than him and to him all peoples owe their praise. See how the Lord answers Habakkuk, See how the Lord's answer to Habakkuk ends in verse 20. But the Lord is holy in his temple. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. There is no one like our God. He is holy and he will silence the nations by executing his plan. And he will not share his glory with another. The kingdoms of this world aren't eternal, but the kingdom of our God is God commands the nations for his glory and God commands the nations for the joy of his people. God commands the nations for the joy of his people. See quickly how Habakkuk responds to God's answer in, verse, in chapter three, verses two to four. Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in all of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of praise. His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from his hand. This is where the power is hidden. Upon hearing God's response, how does Habakkuk respond? He sings. He sings a hymn of praise to his God. At first, to be sure this could be puzzling, Habakkuk seems to ask a reasonable question that would seem to demand a reasoned response. But God didn't answer how we might expect. God doesn't explain how he can govern or restrain evil without causing it or himself being evil. No, instead, he shows Habakkuk his plan and includes him in it. You may have noted back in chapter two, one of the most well-known verses of Habakkuk in in chapter two, verse four, it says, look, his ego is inflated. Speaking of Babylon, he is without integrity, but catch the last part. He says, but the righteous one will live by faith. The righteous one will live by faith. This is one of those phrases, as preachers like to say, they lean on you. It's worth memorizing and meditating on. The righteous one will live by faith. Each part of this phrase could be a sermon in itself, but for now, let's note this contrast. God is showing Habakkuk what's to come for Babylon, and in short, it's destruction and judgment. But in the foretelling of judgment, a promise is extended The righteous one will live by faith. Haven't we seen similar passages in our year of study? First in Genesis 3.15, where God is pronouncing judgment on Adam, Eve, and the serpent and extends a great promise to the seed of the woman that he will one day crush the head of the serpent. There, like here, in the lives of Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, and all of God's prophets, we see a pattern develop. A pattern of through judgment, salvation. Through death, life dead to sin, alive in Christ. Habakkuk points us forward. He points us to a future day where where God is bringing about the judgment will one day bring about the joy of his people as he commands the nations. A day in which his his his, his judgment will flow and his people will rejoice. Look how Habakkuk concludes. I heard and I trembled within, my lips quivered at the sound, rottenness entered my bones, I trembled where I stood." Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crops fail and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, yet I will celebrate the Lord. I'll rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord my God is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. Habakkuk makes clear that hard days will come and that we may wonder what God is doing. But while, well, while we wait, let's not miss the particulars. We can be sure that God is commanding the nations for his glory and the joy of his people. It can be easy to drift into fear when we face instability, the instability of our present world, but God he speaks to us through Habakkuk. God commands the nations, trust him. God commands the nations, trust him. Nations may rage, Kingdoms may fall, but God's church will be triumphant. That's guaranteed. God will secure his glory and the joy of his people in his command of the nations. Now we quickly turn to Zephaniah. In Zephaniah, we'll see that God comforts his people. God comforts his people. From verse one, we already know more about Zephaniah than the other two prophets in this study. However, one item is worth noting. Zephaniah is prophesying in the days of Josiah king, king of Judah in the years of 640 to 609 BC. You'll remember Josiah from 2 Kings 22 through 23 that, that his years were marked by renewal and reform as the people were devoted to the scriptures and living holy lives. This makes Zephaniah's pronouncement in verses two to four more striking. Let's read it. Zephaniah one, two to four. I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth this is the Lord's declaration. I will sweep away peoples and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the residents of Jerusalem. I will cut off every vestige of Baal from, it, from this place, the names of pagan priests along with the priest. Zephaniah begins with a pronouncement against God's people. This time, Judah is among the nations in focus. Judah, that southern tribe that avoided being taken captive by the Assyrians. So first, we see that God comforts his people by proclaiming their judgment. God comforts his people by proclaiming their judgment. We should note that comfort in the scriptures has an enlarged definition from what we immediately consider today. Comfort does include a time of rebuke or correction. So God's first pronouncement against his people regards their worship. He rebukes their pagan priests along with the priest. The problem with God's people wasn't that they forgot God like the Ninevites, but that they wanted to worship him alongside idols. This syncretism violates God's commands. He was clear and his people were to worship him alone. Now his judgment would delay no longer. The Lord commands his people to turn from their wicked ways. He said he's coming to search them with a lamp. They will not be able to hide. Their wealth will not be able to save them. They too, like Nineveh, were prone to rest in, the, in their worldly comforts. And they too, like Assyria and Babylon, had grown to be an oppressive people, prideful in their wealth and numb to the Lord. After expo- his exposing rebuke in chapter 2, the Lord calls the people to repent that they might find refuge in him. Look at chapter two, verse three. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. Now, after reproving Judah for its idolatry and complacency, God moves to pronounce judgment on the nations. He names many demonstrating his complete knowledge. Look down at verse 11, chapter two, verse 11. The Lord will be terrifying to them. When he starves all the gods of the earth, then all the distant coasts and the islands of the nations will bow to worship him, each in its own place. All nations will be laid before him. There is not one nation or one individual that escapes his judgment. But after his rebuke of the nation, the Lord makes, moves back to Jerusalem in chapter three. He tells of his displeasure with the city. The city that was supposed to be a light to the nations that was intended to radiate God's holiness to the ends of the earth had failed and now judgment had come. He has declared their guilt and showed them how costly it is by describing their punishment. But look at verse 14 of chapter 3. A change occurs when the Lord says, Sing for joy, daughter of Zion, shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and celebrate with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord, is among you. You need no longer fear harm. What can account for such a radical change? This passage says it well. He has removed their punishment. So God comforts his people by removing their punishment. God comforts his people by removing their punishment. Judah was to be taken captive by Babylon under God's wrath, but Zephaniah points to the future work of the Lord to remove their punishment, that his plans may go forward. God will be gracious to them, he will bring them back, he will not abandon them. However, what's in view here is not merely the regathering of God's people in Jerusalem, but God will bring bring their exile to an end and God will one day remove their punishment for good. And here we see that God comforts his people by reviving their worship. God comforts his people by reviving their worship. Look at chapter three, verses nine through 10. For I will then restore pure speech to the peoples so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with a single purpose. For beyond the rivers of Cush, my supplications, my dispersed people will bring an offering to me. Skip down to verse 17. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. God has rebuked Judah for their false worship. He knows how deep the problem goes. However, he, as a gracious God, extends a greater promise. He will revive their worship their hearts will be set on him and he will, that is God will, rejoice in their worship of him. What a gift this is. Friends, a new heart oriented to worship of God does not emerge upon Israel's return from Babylonian exile. This work would begin after Jesus ascended and the Spirit came. Many years later, the Holy Spirit would descend on the first believers and set their hearts aflame, fulfilling the promises of Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. God would revive the worship of his people through a miraculous work. Now the question is, do you worship God as he's enabled and required? Let this much be clear from Zephaniah. God does not tolerate false worship. Does your heart delight in him? Do you trust his judgment? He searches with the lamp. Nothing is hidden from him, but he's made a way to remove your punishment and your guilt. He's made a way through his son, Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let's worship our great God with confidence. He has cleared our debt. He delights in us as we worship him with new hearts, hearts for worship that he's given us. Oh, brothers and sisters, God comforts his people. Let's worship him. In Nahum, we saw that God conquers his enemies, calling us to submit to him. In Habakkuk, we observed that God commands the nations so we can trust him. And in Zephaniah, we saw that God comforts his people so we can worship him. When these prophets spoke, evil seemed triumphant. But God would soon shake the nations and dispense his judgments in history. He would bring kingdoms low to make a way for his plan to unfold. Israel, returning from Babylonian exile, made a way for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. And with his birth, the world would begin to change. Outposts of a new kingdom would be established on earth upon Jesus' resurrection and the coming of the Spirit a new world would emerge. However, like we learned from the American founders, independence declared is not quite independence achieved. But unlike unlike the American founders, our reward and our freedom is sure. We work from security with new hearts that God has given to us, but we work still. We work and we wait a day when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of Christ. And on that day, friends, the world will truly be turned upside down. Until then, we submit to the one who conquers his enemies, trust the one who commands the nations, and worship the one who comforts his people, our King, Jesus. Let's pray. Merciful Father, you have shaken the nations that your plan may unfold. You have exalted your Son that all who look to him may be saved. Help us to proclaim him. Help us to submit to him trust him, and worship him while we await his coming again. We thank you for the words that you've given to us, that you've spoken long ago by these prophets. And we ask that you would use them to shape our lives for your glory in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.